Welcome to today's podcast on Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption. Business leaders and their governing boards face ever more challenging disruptions and must be ever more on guard. While some disruptions can be anticipated, others arrive without warning. Their onset stresses stresses decision makers, impairs company operations, and may even put the enterprise at risk. Successful firms strategically manage and are more accurate in their assessment of large-scale risks. But doing so is increasingly challenging given the pace of change, whether financial, technological, regulatory, or environmental. In Mastering Catastrophic Risk, Leading Authorities on Risk Management Strategy and Company Leadership, Howard Conruther and Michael Yusim provide real-world practical insights into how large companies are responding to this new reality and develops a framework for smarter thinking about events that can damage a business. In this podcast, Rain founder David Lawrence interviews the authors about this look at how company leaders prepare for and respond to shocks and crises that threaten their business. With that, I'll turn it over to David. David? Thank you, Greg, uh, Howard, Mike. Um, thank you for the great honor, and uh, thank you for your continued work. And just as a bit of a preamble for the audience, uh, we're very, very fortunate to talk to two of really the preeminent thinkers about risk, uh, risk management, and maybe most importantly, uh, why we continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. And uh, their new book, which follows up uh, on uh, prior work, where they examine sort of why we are so poor at dealing with disastrous risks and calculations and preparing. Um, it's it's truly an extraordinary uh, book that they've now written. And it could not come at a more important time uh, and place in light of some of the issues that we're confronting in an interconnected world. So to begin with, uh, Mike, Howard, uh, maybe we can start with what led you to write this book? Mike, you want to begin? Uh, the context is coming from somewhat different vantage points. Uh, Howard and I, I began to appreciate, partly through our work with uh, the World Economic Forum that does the great event in Davos, Switzerland every year, that <clears throat> risk management, especially catastrophic risk management, had not been on almost anybody's agenda 15 or 20 years ago. And now it's just about on everybody's agenda. And to understand that, the drivers of it and the consequences from it, uh, Howard and I decided to actually go and talk with people who are in the middle of that. So we interviewed top executives, sometimes the CEO, members of the board of a, a little over 100 of the Standard & Poor's 500, the 500 largest companies in the U.S. that are publicly traded by market value. And the effort here was to find out <laughs> what they're doing, how they're doing it, and what are some of the better practices that are emerging so that um, those and other firms can, can take a look at what has emerged to uh, bolster their own ability to anticipate a large-scale risk, especially the, the uncommon variety that have catastrophic consequences. Anyway, it's that stream of thought that led us to where we are. Yeah. Well, just to follow up on what Mike said, uh, we did a book 
for the World Economic Forum that we've edited with a number of other people on learning from catastrophes a few years back. As Mike had indicated, this has been an issue of great uh, interest uh, to uh, the international community. We both will recognize through our respective uh, centers, Mike directs the Leadership Center and I co-direct the Risk Management and Decision Process Center, both at Wharton, companies and managers at the very top as well as at the lower levels uh, were behaving in ways that really were not consistent with what uh, one would hope that they might do with respect to these very low probability events. And catastrophes do not happen every day, as we know, and so we don't have uh, a lot of information on them until, often until after they occur. And so we felt it would be interesting uh, to begin to understand uh, the kind of adverse risks that companies face uh, how they dealt with them at the time and how they are dealing with them today. And in the process, we, as Mike indicated, we interviewed a number of uh, companies in the S&P 500, over 100 companies. Uh, we were very fortunate that the Travelers Foundation provided us with a grant to do this work, the late Jay Fishman, a person who really had supported this research with giving us degrees of freedom. And what we found, and I think we can talk more about this, is that uh, until uh, recently, companies were not paying a great deal of attention to cat catastrophes, but now it's on the agenda of the board of directors and these companies, and they are trying to look at these events in a more systematic way than they have in the past. So that's a great um, bit of context for the book. You know, it was terrific that Jay Fishman, you know, helped to sponsor this uh, because I know about his uh, his leadership in this area. So as we think about um, the lack of preparation for catastrophic risk, uh, there's sort of a, a question that I think um, goes unanswered which is how do enterprises, how do you at least get enterprises to start to correctly identify what are the potential catastrophic risks for their enterprise? And the reason I bring this up is, you know, based upon my experience at Goldman Sachs, uh, the financial crisis of 2008 was nowhere on anyone's radar. In fact, I follow the great work that Wharton does, you know, with uh, Davos and the World Economic Forum, and they put out a terrific survey of what they think are the most significant risks, and, you know, that was nowhere to be seen. And to perhaps take this into uh, the world of Tom Wolf, who passed away in 2018 also, and one of the things I've, I've noted to myself is that maybe one of the reasons that he passed away in 2018 was because the world had become a place that not even he could imagine uh, within his within his novels in terms of risk. But when you see the uh, when you see something like the Me Too movement and the surfacing of an, of the proverbial elephant that was in the room, not just in Hollywood but many corporations for you know literally decades and decades and decades, and how that emerged and how the Weinstein company, you know, went from a high valuation to, you know, almost zero. How do companies begin to identify and whom should they rely upon in that process to know what the highly consequential events might be, whether they're low probability, mid probability, or even high probability? 
what we found in talking with these companies is that that because they had to experience these events in order for them to pay attention. Uh, they recognized that they were treating them as below their threshold level of concern and that they really felt that it was important for them to really focus more attention on their risk appetite and risk tolerance to think about worst-case scenarios, but on all levels of the organization. This is really important to recognize that Firms are behaving now differently because these events are not as low probability as they were before. The financial crisis is a great example uh, that you use because it took the financial crisis for firms to say, we better think about what our risk tolerance is going to be in the future, uh, and we need to be able to pay attention to that now rather than waiting until another event occurs. David, if you look at uh – any number of the trend lines that are out there on the scale and costs and consequences of disasters, uh, all the trend lines are up. If you look at the number of people who are uh, victims of disasters that have required food, shelter, medical assistance from natural disasters, take those alone, the fires in California, the earthquake in Indonesia, and well beyond, the yearly total had been in, in years past uh, under 100 million or so, but these days uh, we're well over 300 million per year, people who are directly affected. And, of course, companies uh, share in, in some of that woe if they're in a region. Take uh, companies in Japan after the uh, infamous 2011 earthquake there. The uh the the trend lines are telling us and, and companies look at this kind of information obviously as well that the world when it comes to natural disasters and then human made disasters is um, a riskier place to operate in that said we have found that the events of 0809 the financial crisis that you alluded to the supply chain disruptions of the Fukushima blow-up, the, the, the reactors on the coast of Japan that began to uh, complete meltdown after the tsunami, the Japanese earthquake and tsunami of 2011, that these have uh, served as kind of wake-up moments that have uh, pushed uh, uh, people, in, in certainly in the companies that we went into, to become more self-conscious about anticipating and preparing for risk. And one consequence of that is that in many companies we have found frontline employees now are asked to provide information to corporate headquarters about the kind of risk that they're seeing in their own operations, whether in Mexico or Brazil or maybe uh, around Louisiana during, during uh, hurricane time. Senior managers are becoming much more self-conscious about risk and its management, and boards of directors have weighed in as well, asking, at least on an annual basis, for top management to brief the board on the large-scale risks that are out there that aren't faced necessarily now, but uh, unequivocally low probability, but not zero probability, are on the um, uh, on the horizon. So, quick summary is that with the, the the trends that we've referred to and some of the catastrophic events that we've been through, beginning with 9-11, the financial crisis of 08-09, uh, 
the great uh, terrible Japanese events of 2011, all these have pushed companies to become more self-conscious in assigning responsibility to particular managers, frontline, mid-level, and at the top and in the boardroom uh, to think more self-consciously about low probability but high consequence events that can disrupt just about everything. So that's a, a great overview um, about, we'll call it the changing landscape of how enterprises are beginning to think about risk. If I can unpack, uh, Howard, what you and uh, Mike are alluding to, so, you know, I can't help but um, think about uh, the movie uh, by Mel Brooks, History of the World, where he plays Moses and he's carrying tablets down. Mount Sinai, and he says, I bring you the 15 commandments, and all of a sudden one tablet drops to the ground and shatters, and he says, the 10 commandments. Uh, you have put together 15 uh, uh, commandments uh, toward mastering catastrophic risk, and I am sensing an allusion to at least uh, three things that are, uh, three of your commandments that I'd like to emphasize from. Mike, what you were saying and how you were saying. Uh, so among them, uh, and maybe they're, they're, they're four, four or five actually now that I think about it, but the notion of empowering everybody in an organization to own the organization and the organization's exposure so that even people who are in the operational fields uh, are surfacing issues. Um, the appreciation of the interconnectivity of the we'll call it the global economy and how that can impact the company. Um, being careful not to fight the last war, and obviously, you know, we're talking about Fukushima and the financial crisis. I will note, and I'd like to get into this in a little bit, uh, the amazing uh, amount of human psychology that, you know, is prone to forget the history's lessons. And uh, Wharton and uh, Wharton's Business Review, Knowledge of Wharton, have highlighted uh, instances, or at least the questions of whether we've gotten the lessons uh, of uh, ten, now ten years ago with the financial crisis, but you know, but we don't want to fight that last war. Uh, being uh, again alert to near misses, uh, the conduct of action, action reviews when you know there has been a problem, and then maybe most importantly, at least in my mind, is having peripheral vision about what else is happening with to your competitors. Uh, within the industry and within maybe the broader economy and asking uh, the question of, you know, whether there's some lessons there and what could happen to you. And so uh, as we unpack, uh, because the first part, I guess, of managing an issue is understanding that, you know, there are certain problems and exposures. Is that sort of a fair summary of, about how you guys have thought about the ways in which enterprises can be smarter about identifying their exposures and then in turn assigning probabilities and then in turn assigning risk management processes around them? Uh, well, the main point that, that you highlighted and that, that I'll just say a few words about is there's a tendency for firms not to prepare for these low probability events in the way that they should. And so our first step is prepare now rather than waiting in the future uh, for the event to happen to do something. I think that's really a, a, a key element here, and I think many of these firms recognize that particularly. I think that the, the key uh, L 
element that you also mentioned, uh, David, in your comments is learning from other companies' misfortunes. And the reason I think that we felt that that was so important is that if you just focus on your own past experiences, you may not have the data to really take the right steps that you'd want to take now. That's why near misses are so important for the same reason, because it gives you an opportunity of really learning for something that almost didn't happen, uh, that almost happened but didn't happen, and uh, you can then take some steps now to deal with it. So the, the notion of actually putting on the table uh, these events uh, are critical, I think, if it turns out that there are lots of other things on their agenda that they have to deal with now, they're not going to focus on the, on the cat catastrophic event. And so we really felt it was important to give the kind of checklist that came from our interviews and also from some of the work that we and a lot of others have been doing. Uh, we highlight in the book the fact that uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, when you're dealing with these very low probability events, there's a tendency to behave intuitively and not to think about a more deliberate course of action. And these, the checklists are designed to get uh, companies to really reflect on this. And as you said, everybody is responsible, and that is our last 15th commandment if you're talking about commandments uh, with respect to how we would like everyone to behave. Yeah, David, I think I would just add by way of illustration, reference to our first commandment. I like, I like the phrasing that you put on uh, our 10 checklist items here. Um, which is prepare now for low probability events ahead. Case in point, and by the way, Howard and I have concluded that in communicating to people in management, uh, often good research is a context for uh, sustaining and developing our understanding. Equally important, though, is a tangible illustration of what the research and thinking would warn us about or prepare us for. And thus, by way of example, just to put this in front of us very briefly, uh, Morgan Stanley, the, the New York-based, a very large investment bank, had many of its offices in the World Trade Center. And when the first building is hit, uh, the uh, this is on 9-11, of course, by the aircraft, the then chief of risk for Morgan Stanley called the chief executive and said, uh, the following has happened, uh, and the Port Authority of New York is recommending that we stay put in the building. They were in the building, uh, not hit. Uh, and the chief executive said to the chief of risk, well, what do you think we should do? And the chief of risk said, despite the recommendation from the Port Authority of New York, um, my own personal assessment of the risks and the circumstances is we got to get our 4,000 people out of this building now. And the, uh, what became an orderly and successful evacuation uh, on this terrible, terrible day can be attributed to exactly this point that Howard referenced, our first uh, on the list, which is prepare now for low probability events. Uh, eight years earlier, a truck bomb in the basement of the World Trade Center had exploded, killed a number of people, uh, but not directly affected Morgan Stanley. But the then chief of risk, this is back in 1993, said, uh, who knows what's out there, who knows what low probability but extremely catastrophic event uh, may, be, um, may be warned against by this particular incident. 
he asked that the company every year stage a mock evacuation, or just as a practice uh, routine. And thus, when Rich Rescorla, that's the name of the chief risk officer there at Morgan Stanley, did put out an instruction very quickly after the first building was hit, second one coming uh, some minutes later, he said to the 4,000 Morgan Stanley people in that second building, uh, let's get out of here. And with a orderly evacuation, uh, virtually all of those in the building were able to get out. Rich Rescorla, the, the chief risk officer, had, uh, alas, with a couple of his colleagues, gone back into the building uh, to check to make certain everybody got out when the second building indeed was hit, and he will not survive the day. The point uh, that Howard and I have been very cognizant of uh, coming from this and from our discussions inside these companies is that <clears throat> we we need to imagine the worst case. We always hope for the best case, but we need to have in place uh, steps that will assist us if we do uh, face one terrible catastrophic event, whether it's a fire, an earthquake, uh, a financial meltdown. And to the credit of Morgan Stanley and Rich Vascorla, uh, they did have that in place, preparing for the worst while always hoping for the best. And it made a huge difference on that particular day for that particular company. Uh, we wish that that was the silver bullet, but uh, one directive or one commandment we've concluded is not enough. Uh, to really cover the terrain of what's essential, and we tried to get it as down to as small and compact a listing, a checklist, if you will. And with that, we do uh, end up with these 15 suggestions for really thinking and working with and managing against uh, the big one that may come one day. Right. To follow up on, on Mike's point, I think it's a, a one that we've, we spent a lot of time reflecting on. Um, as he indicated, uh, it took the 1993 World Trade Center disaster to get uh, Rich Riscola and Morgan Stanley to pay attention, and they conducted evacuation drills between 1993 and 9-11 uh, in order to be able to prepare people for this very uh, orderly evacuation procedure that they followed. And coming back to the other example that Mike alluded to earlier, the Fukushima uh, earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown, the trifecta uh, that really uh, uh, paralyzed the country for a while, uh, it took that particular disaster for companies to recognize that maybe they better have one more source of supply chain because of the interdependencies that are so critical in the world today. The automobile companies and others were interrupted because of the fact that they didn't have the supplies that they needed from Japan. And so our hope is that with this checklist of 15 steps, companies will be in a position to do the kinds of things that Mike was just alluding to, to prepare in advance by thinking about these worst-case scenarios, uh, conducting after-action reviews when something happens, but to really focus on what they should be doing ahead of time, uh, be, rather than saying, you know, it's not going to happen to me. So, uh, first of all, just excellent points, and there's nothing like real-life narratives to drive home uh, the importance of the lessons that you guys have um, curated. So if I can um, maybe take the two examples and tease out another question, um, because I think there are some additional lessons. So uh, number one, um, the 9-11 Commission report, which 
I've always urged people to read not as a necessarily um, a narrative around 9-11 itself, but around risk management and what's needed. Uh, one of the lines in the report is uh, it was uh, not simply a, a failure of intelligence, but a failure of imagination. And to your point about being able to think through what what are the exposures of the low, even the low probability events. And at the time, um, one could argue that no one could envision, you know, uh, individuals flying airplanes as, as essentially weapons of mass destruction into the towers. But there had been, um, you know, a number of years earlier, uh, there was that truck bomb uh, that was parked in the garage. But, Mike, to your point, you know, the decision to evacuate people turned out to be the right decision also could have been easily the wrong decision, particularly in the face of um, direct uh, advice from the Port Authority about staying outside the building. So, example, debris and other things could have fall, as easily fallen upon people as they were leaving the building, and they could have been in harm's way if there had not been a second attack. And, you know, people, you know, there was imperfect information. And so what I wanted to go to, you have a wonderful, I think it's uh, Commandment uh, 7, which is act fast. Howard, I'll say, think slow, but act fast. Even with imperfect information. And uh, there was a senior um, member of Goldman Sachs who talked to me. Um, a little bit about um, what, over his many, many years uh, in a variety of positions, including the government, that he found was the most important thing, which was the ability to make a decision even when um, events and the landscape is ambiguous. Easy to make decisions when, you know, guidelines are there, markets are performing, mm. people are behaving, et cetera. But when you are in the middle of ambiguity, the ability to still make a decision, be agile enough to adjust along the way, uh, to own it and to recognize information will never be perfect is a very, very important quality uh, within within leaders. So your commandment seven, I just think, is extraordinarily uh, important because a complete set of data for making management decisions are seldom available, particularly in the midst of a crisis. And part of what I think is within your 15 commandments is to understand who actually owns risk within an organization and who owns the decision-making process. And, you know, in, in talking about 9-11 and the fact that the chief risk officer knew to call the CEO and the CEO then said, you know, what do you think? And a decision was quickly made. That, in essence, was a critical part of this process. Uh, there were people who actually were empowered to make the decision and they could do so quickly. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I think that that is uh, one of the themes that you guys have emphasized is, you know, the ownership of risk. And risk can be balance sheet risk. It can be catastrophic risk from a natural disaster. It could be an act of mass violence. It could be a cyber attack. It can be a variety of things. But the importance of organizations identifying the people who actually own particular risks and own the decision-making in a time of crisis. And we love to do a tabletop exercise with our clients where, you know, the CEO is on a uh, eco ecological NGO tour and the Amazon is beyond reach when a certain 
catastrophe hits. And so who's who's and the and by the way, half the board of directors is with him or her. And who's going to make the decisions? Uh, that's always a, a great question. So can I give you guys that question as well? David, you raise a really important point because there is risk in risk management. And going back to Rich Viscorla, he did make a decision, recommended to the CEO that they evacuate. Um, but there was risk in that in that it indeed, by the Port Authority's reckoning, might have been more dangerous to be outside uh, that building than inside it. As it turns out, it came out the other way on that one. But uh, there is risk in um, all these decisions that are made, especially in a crisis. That said, uh, to quote from a Morgan Stanley official after the event, uh, the then Chief Operating Officer, a guy named Robert Scott, he said, if you wait for a crisis to begin to lead, it's too late, a, a direct quote. And that's what we call for in the book with these uh, 15 the leaders checklist items, which is to put in place knowing that there are going to be risks, certainly, in managing your way through a very tough circumstance. But you want to optimize your ability to act quickly. And just by one uh Kind of quick illustration of that point to make it tangible. Uh, Howard and I have also looked at uh, some great national disasters, such as uh, the earthquake that devastated Italy, uh, Chile rather, back in 2010. And what came out of that particular experience, reported the president whom we interviewed um, in Chile itself, was a willingness and a readiness, a strength and ability to act quickly when crisis suddenly mushroomed up. And thus, a few months after that particular earthquake, 33 uh, miners were trapped in a, in, a, in a mine in northern Chile, and those who became involved in the rescue, including the Minister of Mines, said, we learned from what we went through with this earlier earthquake that devastated the country that we have to intervene and act quickly, knowing full well we don't have perfect information, but the bigger error is to be inactive and to be passive in response. And then several years later, <coughs> when Chile is hit by another earthquake and a tsunami resulted, uh, this is f four years later, uh, from that earthquake, uh, Chile, by virtue of putting in place a whole set of measures to respond to that kind of an event, were very quick to evacuate, uh, very few lives were lost, and a head of the rescue agency in Chile said, we learned from the last event uh, to put in place a number of measures so we could quickly uh, evacuate and prepare people for the onslaught of a tsunami if an earthquake hit. But the bigger point I think I would just leave us with is that you're absolutely right, there is risk in risk management, and a lot of what we have said in this book is an effort to reduce the risks of not being prepared uh, for what lies ahead. Howard, over to you. A point I would want to make as a counterpoint to what Mike said, leadership is critical, and the points that he made are, and, the, and what you made, David, are also critical. But there's also uh, the other side of this, uh, and I do want to mention that because uh, we um, uh, focused uh, on 9-11, 
And the insurance industry is an example of companies that really paid no attention to 9-11 until it occurred. They had never charged anything for terrorism coverage at all until uh, uh, they were forced to think about this event in 9-11 because they hadn't really uh, experienced any damage. Uh, after 9-11, they refused to offer coverage because of the losses. So they focused in the terms of what they actually were thinking about in this event not occurring, and then when it did occur, they focused on what the consequences were. The upshot of all of that is that there's been a real change in the mindset of the insurers in thinking about these events, and they've also highlighted something we feel is very important, and that is the role of public-private partnerships to deal with catastrophic risks, which we haven't talked about. And the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act got passed as a result of the fact that insurers refused to offer terrorism coverage afterwards. And that was a major piece of legislation that got them right back into the game with the federal government providing coverage against very large losses. One of the things that we think is very important and we highlight in the book is that the private sector and the market can certainly play a role, but you do need these public-private partnerships. You do need well-enforced regulations and building codes and other things that we found. And in the Chile example, they had the best building codes in the world uh, prior to that earthquake. Very little damage. One of the reasons is that anyone, the developers, were responsible for any of the losses that would have occurred from a poorly designed building and could be sent to jail. So that is one way that you had a whole public-private partnership in a way that worked very well to reduce some of the damage that might otherwise have occurred uh, had the earthquake not been better prepared for, and they were as well prepared for in the context of what Chile did. Okay, Howard, that's a great point. And I actually was going to lead into the public, the importance of uh, public-private sector partnerships, not just uh, by, by dint of a title or a conference, but in actuality, in, in some places it's worked and you highlight fire codes and building codes and things like that. And obviously, uh, enterprises can be extraordinarily well prepared, but if the infrastructure uh, around you is, is crumbling for whatever reason, it does very, very little good. And um, the point you make, uh, both you and Mike make in the book, I think has direct applicability, not just to natural disaster preparedness, but what we're facing right now in, uh, with cybersecurity threats, uh, voting systems. Uh, but, you know, clearly we have seen it uh, manifested, everything from management uh, to, um, to terrorism acts. So it's a very, very important point. I'm glad you raised it. Um, I wanted also to raise a point about 9-11, and I know this has been your life's work, is getting people to focus on the risk. Uh, a lot of the recommendations in the 9-11 report have been acted upon or implemented. And there is a tendency once a uh, calamity has passed uh, not to necessarily think about it again. Um, and so how, how if, if you can just take a minute or two, how do we continue to reinforce the lessons of past events, not in a way that we were fighting yesterday's battles, but we're applying them to the future, and particularly in a competitive world where other companies or institutions may be moving ahead and taking all sorts of risk and eating market share and things like that and ignoring things that they're supposed to be paying attention to. I'd say consider worst-case scenarios and appreciate global interconnections. Over to you, Mike. It's a, it's a long march, and the, the process is imperfect. But over time, as companies look at one another, as examples are put in front of 
people who are in companies uh, thinking about the future of the company. Uh, I, th I think over time, our appraisal from talking with these companies is that companies have strengthened in many ways their ability at the board level and at the frontline management level to anticipate risk. That said, we have only to look around at our landscape to appreciate that um, if you've followed anything uh, that has happened, say, at Wells Fargo or at Volkswagen or Facebook, that uh, these issues are, are out there. They're not going away. And a uh, quick summary is companies, our book is intended to facilitate this process, are embracing many measures which are improving the ability of companies to come back from big setback. So I want to thank both of you guys uh, truly, truly, not only for your um, thinking and thought leadership, but I'll call it public service, um, and that's what it really is. And so uh, congratulations on the book, congratulations on the prior work, the work to come. Uh, look forward to a continued conversation, collaboration, and, and the very few suggestions I would make to uh, the body of your work uh, except the following. Um, you may want to include a, a, the Teddy Roosevelt quote from his speech, Citizenship in a Republic, and, you know, the section about the man in the arena, because very often the people charged with risk management, they can be easily criticized in a world that tends to look through a rearview mirror and apply hindsight analysis. And so risk management is not a perfect science, uh, right. but it's best efforts and thoughtful and thoughtful approaches and continued learning, and you guys have very much been at the vanguard of that. So thank you again, and thanks for the time today. And that concludes today's podcast. Special thanks to Howard Conruther and Michael Usim for coming today to talk to us about their book, Mastering Catastrophic Risk, How Companies Are Coping with Disruption. If you'd like to learn more about this book, we have a link in the description. Another special thanks to David Lawrence, our founder and chief collaborative officer, for hosting today's podcast. If you liked this content and want more, please feel free to go to www.rainnetwork.com join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com join to become a RAIN member today.